0: Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash.
1: Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Helen Scales and Chris Smith, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up... How the bacteria that live in our gut, and even how we pronounce certain words, can tell us the routes our ancestors travelled into Australia and beyond.
2: It's amazing to think that there are messages from the past hidden inside us, both in the words that we speak and in the bugs that live inside our stomachs.
1: How RNA housekeeping can explain why we have fewer
0: genes than you might expect. When scientists sequenced the human genome with the Human Genome Project, one of the startling findings to emerge was that we actually had far fewer genes than people thought we would need. In fact the average human probably runs on about 25,000 genes which means inauspiciously we've got fewer genes running us than a rice plant.
1: And we find out how metal organic frameworks can make hydrogen fuel tanks safer and scrub the CO2
3: from our exhaust. They're more than 80% empty so these tiny walls define lots of minuscule spaces. The important thing is that the space is on the size of a molecule and that's what enables them to store molecules like hydrogen or methane for fuel or to uh, pull some molecules out of a mixture. That's all on the way.
2: Now, first this week, two studies published in the journal Science have found evidence from the bugs that live inside our guts and from the words that come out of our mouths that both shed light on how ancient human ancestors migrated out of Asia and spread across the far reaches of the Pacific Ocean. And that's a subject that's kept archaeologists scratching their heads for decades now. Now, Yassan Moodley from the Max Planck Institute for Infection Biology in Germany led a team of researchers who collected samples of gut bacteria called Heliobacter pylori from around 200 Aboriginal people living in Taiwan, Australia, Papua New Guinea and New Caledonia. Now, these parasitic bacteria live inside the guts of around half of the people in the world and it can lead to things like stomach ulcers and it's genuinely people who don't have access to modern medicines who still have these bacteria. Now, they're only found inside human beings so we think that our ancestors carried them around the globe inside their stomachs and as they went, the bacteria mutated and evolved into different strains as they went along their way. Now, by sequencing the DNA of these gut bacteria, Moodley and his team discovered two new strains. The first one called H.P. Sahul, and they think that that split off from Asian ancestors around thirty to 40,000 years ago with the people that came out of Asia, moved down through Indonesia, which at the time was actually a land bridge because sea levels were much lower then. There was an ice age going on. There was a lot of water locked up in ice, uh, on the ice caps. So there was this bridge coming through to Australia and Papua New Guinea and um, which together formed a single land mass called sahur which is the name of this particular type of bacteria a second strain they think called hp maori indicates a much later much more recent influx of people and this time from taiwan the idea here is that the people with this other strain of bacteria moved down south from taiwan first to the philippines they then got as far as papua new guinea and through some sort of stops and starts really they got their way eventually towards polynesia and new zealand Now, a really exciting thing is this other study that's actually come up with a very similar story, but looking at something completely different. Not at the stuff that grows inside us, that lives inside us, but the languages that we use. Now, languages have been used for a long time to help unpick the past, because rather like mutating bacteria, languages also change over time, and they can be used to trace relationships between groups of people in different parts of the world. Now, Russell Gray from the University of Auckland in New Zealand and his team analysed the relationships between 400 Austronesian languages that are spoken by tribes all across the Pacific and he focused on words that are really similar between those different languages and these are words called cognates it's not a cognate is Chris
0: no I'm not cognizant of the meaning of cognate <laughs> of a cognate language in what this
2: mean? in this sense these are words that sound the same so say for example the word star in English in Italian that's stella, and um, it's, it's sterner in German stare in Dutch estrella in Spanish and so on so they, these all have very similar Tina connections Tina Turner surely huh Rod Stewart oh
0: Tina Turner they're stars, aren't
2: they? Oh, I see, oh, Chris. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's all coming back to a very similar word. And they're all. it shows, basically, that those languages have all got some kind of common connection, whether you're a star or not. But they, this team basically took a huge amount of computing power to make all these analyses of 400 languages, looking at comparing different words between them. And they found, similarly, that there was this likely migration out of Taiwan around the same sort of time, about five millennia ago. Uh, again, in fits and starts. So it seems that people were developing their ability to make boats and to cross really huge areas of sea to make their way around the world so really it's amazing to think that there are messages from the past hidden inside us both in the words that we speak and in the bugs that live inside our stomachs
0: yes it's incredible to think the genetic legacy of your ancestors lives on in you not actually in you directly in your own dna which of course it does but in the bacteria that you're harboring too Now, talking about DNA, there's also been an amazing discovery this week announced from scientists at the University of Edinburgh. They've got a paper in the journal Molecular Cell. This is David Tollevy and his colleagues. And they have discovered the function of a whole load of DNA that's in our genomes, which we had previously written off as junk. Because when scientists sequenced the human genome with the Human Genome Project, one of the the startling findings to emerge was that we actually had far fewer genes than people thought we would need. In fact, the average human probably runs on about 25,000 genes, which means inauspiciously we've got fewer genes running us than a rice plant, yet we're pretty complicated organisms, so how do we manage that well what they did was to look at yeast because yeast are very similar cell types to the cells we find in our own bodies, so they're a useful easy very rapidly growing study subject very easy to look at and what they found is that although there are these big sequences of dna that don't code for anything they don't have genes in them they still make chemical messengers these are a kind of rna molecule and what these chemical messengers do is to manipulate the action of the genes so what they found is that if they mutated or changed or removed some of these intergenetic inter-genic sequences, these non-coding regions, they found that the activity of other genes changed. So far from being junk DNA that does nothing, this junk DNA actually very carefully and accurately controls the level of activity of other important genes that keep your cells running. And why this is important and how it works is that it's all down to how DNA is packaged in cells each cell in the body contains about two metres of DNA. So with something that big, you can imagine if you had a ball of wool two metres long and a cell which is smaller than the head of a pin to pack it into, if you weren't very careful how you wound it up, you'd end up with a hell of a mess on your hands. It wouldn't fit. So the cells get round this problem by very accurately and precisely condensing DNA down into a very compact form called chromatin. And the problem with compactifying the DNA in this way is that it makes some of the genes hard to get at, unless you add chemical markers or tags onto the genes that keep them active and that's a bit like you bringing things that you use a lot to the front of your cupboard so you can reach them easily and the things that you use less you put at the back so what they found is that these non-coding rnas can manipulate the additional removal of chemical tags called methyl groups or acetyl groups from the proteins the histones that dna gets wound around and this affects the expression of genes so all that junk isn't really junk at all
2: So understanding the junk is going to take us a step closer to understanding how our genes work. That's fantastic. Well, when it comes to being a male fish, life can be tough. When the lady in your life gets around a bit and mates lots with other males, it means that to make sure you produce lots of offspring, you have to compete with all the other guys on the scene. And more specifically, your sperm has to be up to the job. Now a team of researchers led by John Fitzpatrick from the University of Western Australia have shown for the first time in the journal PNAS this week that when male fish have to compete with each other, each other on a daily basis for a chance to mate their sperm evolves to be bigger more abundant and faster now when polygynous fish mate a female lays, an egg, lays eggs uh, and the males then rush in and add their sperm lots of them all together and hope that they will get there first before someone else um, now for a long time biologists have suspected that polygynous males must evolve tactical sperm that are faster and therefore much more likely to reach the eggs first but up until now no solid proof of the idea has been found but now Fitzpatrick and his team looked at species of cichlid fish living in Lake Tanganyika in Africa. Now, cichlids are famous for being having evolved extremely rapidly into lots of different species. Now, some of these cichlids are monogamous, they stick together for the, with the same partner for all of their lives, and others are highly promiscuous, sharing many different partners during the course of their life. Now, the researchers went out into Lake Tanganyika and went scuba diving and caught some, tw- uh, some of these male fish uh, from 29 different species, and they dissected them to have a look at their sperm. And they measured the sperm under a microscope and used digital cameras to measure how fast the sperm were swimming around and they found that indeed the polygynous species um, with the males mating lots and lots did indeed have larger faster sperm than the monogamous species. They also found the first really good evidence that we have that if you've got bigger sperm then you do that really is associated with faster swimming because you've got a longer tail on the sperm which which is more powerful and can generate more propulsion. And also from earlier studies, um, when people have drawn up a family tree of these um, amazingly diverse cichlid fish, Fitzpatrick were then, and his team were then able to work out that the ancient cichlids that first colonised the lake had very small, slow moving sperm. And then over time, as promiscuity increased, um, in fact, that was how the sperm then began to evolve to be bigger and faster so cichlid fish really are the first group of species that we've able to demonstrate this evolution of, of speedy sperm in polygynous species but it's likely that lots of other things are probably doing the same thing where wherever it is that males have to make sure that they pass on their next genes their genes to the next generation do you think
0: the same is true in humans Helen
2: that's a bit controversial actually Chris Um sperm competition is something that some people think does happen in in humans um, but which would suggest that we are maybe in some senses polygynous but that's another issue indeed
0: Thank you. Thanks, Helen. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. Well, also this week, there's an interesting paper that's been published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society, and it's all about the subject of moths, not someone with a lisp trying to say the word moth, This is actually metal organic frameworks. These are molecules that form something that's a bit like a cage. In other words, there's a hole in the middle, and you can put things into it. Perhaps you could even use them, for example, to scrub gases, which you wanted to remove selectively from exhaust flues. They're quite hard to make, though, so to tell us a bit more about them, here's the author of that paper, Joe Hupp. He's from Northwestern University. Hello, Joe.
3: Hello, Chris. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Good to have you on the programme. Now, tell us, what are these MOFs, and what's their structure? If you could zoom in with a very powerful microscope and see them, what would they look like?
3: Well, you would see uh, tiny metal atoms or ions on the corners, and then rigid pillars that are made of organic molecules. Each uh, collection of these defines a cage, but the cages go on forever. And an important property of these is that they're they're not just isolated cages; they're crystalline materials. If you did zoom in and looked at one of these ch- uh, cages, you would see a tunnel going on forever with uh, exactly the same size. Uh, cage all the way through.
0: So they're almost like sort of children's building blocks but with a hole in the middle that you can connect together to make enormously voluminous containers but at a mac- molecular level.
3: That's right. The materials are uh, have surface areas that are gigantic. The, the, the largest are more than 6,000 square meters per gram. They have the lowest densities of uh, any uh, known crystalline materials and they have Uh, gigantic interior volume, and some of them, they're more than 80% empty. So these tiny walls define lots of minuscule spaces. The important thing is that the space is on the size of a molecule, and that's what enables them to uh, store molecules like hydrogen or methane for fuel or to, uh, as you mentioned, pull some molecules out of a mixture.
0: And just to add some perspective, 6,000 meters squared is as big as a football pitch. So we're, per gram, that's incredible. So when you say that you actually make these things, you have metal atoms on the corner. So if we imagine a cube, which is a simplest structural and functional unit, yeah. you've got a metal atom on each corner of the yeah. cube, and they're connected by these organic linkers. That's How right. do you actually make these things?
3: They turn out to be re- pretty easy to make. It's just hard to make them well. You simply cook them the organic pieces that are sticky for the metal ions, uh, and the metal ions, a mixture for four or five days, and if everything goes right, uh, you get crystals. Uh, what we typically do is try three or four hundred sets of conditions, and a few of them work. So it's, it's really a, a very uh, empirical science at the moment.
0: How much of these things can you make? Are we talking microgram quantities? Are you talking you could actually make a reasonable amount that could hold reasonable amounts of molecules?
3: Well, of course, in the laboratory, we are designing these and scouting these for very specific purposes, so we only need uh, tens or hundreds of milligrams. But BASF, which is the world's largest chemical company, has demonstrated that it's easy, relatively easy, with the right materials to make kilogram quantities of these. In fact, they've driven a demonstration vehicle across Europe where the fuel tanks uh, are filled with methane, But what stores the methane are these tiny cavities.
0: So could you just explain to us how these tiny cavities are useful in storing methane? Why is it better to use a complex crystal like this than to just put a large cylinder of gas in the back of the car?
3: Well, (laughs) first of all, I don't think you or I would want to drive a a car that had a, a stainless steel cylinder in the back in case of a collision. The methane is much more safely stored if it's in a container that's not much bigger than the methane molecule itself. It turns out that in order to stick to the material, it has to be very close to it. So in a stainless steel tank, most of the molecules never touch the wall. Uh, so it's better to have tiny, tiny channels and have those, uh, it, the molecules adhere to them.
0: And just to finish off, Joe, can you tell us, because one of the things I mentioned that you um, said to me was that you could scrub out gases from flues in exhaust pipes, for example. So could you make a molecule, for instance, that has a cavity that's small enough to grab, or chemically active enough to grab one species of chemical, a waste gas you don't want going into the atmosphere, and let less harmful things go past, a kind of molecular sieve, if you like?
3: Yes, there's lots of interesting work on, for example, pulling carbon dioxide out of methane. One of the companies uh, in the United States, uh, Innovene Chemicals, spends a half billion dollars a year uh, doing this basically with freezers. They condense carbon dioxide to a liquid to get it out of natural gas. And the reason they spend a half billion dollars a year on this is because, well, they can mark up the price of the gas by more than a half billion dollars a year. But it's very energy intensive, and they would much prefer to have a material that just grabbed all the carbon dioxide and left the natural gas, the methane, behind.
0: Joe, thank you very much. We'll leave it there. That was Professor Joe Hupp, who was from Northwestern University in the US, talking to us about a species of molecule he's working on called MOFs, Metal Organic Frameworks, which are viewed as a very important future molecule for containing gases or trapping molecules in tiny molecular cages. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com.
1: Well, that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. This Naked Scientist newsflash featured Chris Smith and Helen Scales and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed this newsflash, why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where we bring you the latest in science news, interviews with top scientists from around the world, your questions and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home each week. We'll be back with another roundup of science news next week.
0: The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.